I pray it was the Lord who put this on my heart to talk about one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, Josiah. But before we talk about him and before you hear my voice, you need to hear the voice of the Lord. There is no substitute for hearing the word of God. And I'm going to ask you, as I do to the class that I teach every Sunday morning these days in the book of Ezekiel, we're doing 72 sermons on Ezekiel at College Church, and it's been quite a challenge. But we begin always with reading the scripture, and I tell people, close your Bibles. The scriptures are written to be heard in community. Don't be distracted by the translation that I use, and don't be distracted by my poor reading. He he left out a word. That's the trouble if you follow along. And so I I, I tell my people, put your Bibles down. You can pick them up again when we're done. You need to hear the same words, all of you, without distraction. And so let's begin, and I'm dealing with two texts here. 2 Kings 22, 15 to 20, Christian Standard Version, slightly modified because they, many translations don't translate some key words here very helpfully. This one did, and so I'll go there. And then 2 Chronicles 35, 20 to 27. So hear the word of the Lord. Huldah said to Hilkiah the priest and his delegation, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Say to the man who sent you to me, This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on this place and on this inhabitants, fulfilling all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods in order to provoke me with all the works of their hands." My wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender... And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard you. The declaration of the Lord. Therefore, I will indeed gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place. Then they reported this to the king. Now, Second Chronicles. After all this, that Josiah had prepared the tem- for the temple Necho, king of Egypt, marched up to fight at Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to confront him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What is the issue between you and me, king of Judah? I have not come against you today, but to the dynasty I am fighting. God told me to hurry. Stop opposing God who is with me. Don't make him destroy you. 
But Josiah did not turn away from him. Instead, in order to fight with him, he disguised himself. He did not listen to Nico's words from the mouth of God, but went to the valley of Megiddo to fight. The archers shot King Josiah, and he said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. So his servants took him out of the war chariot, carried him in his second chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem. Then he died, and they buried him in the tomb of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah chanted a dirge over Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women still speak of Josiah in their dirges to this very day. They established them as a statute for Israel. Indeed, they are written in the dirges, the name of the book. The rest of the events of Josiah's reign, along with the deeds of faithful love, according to what is written in the Torah of the Lord, and his words from beginning to end are written about in the king in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are some things about that God does that just don't make any sense to me. In 1972, when my wife and I were students in the seminary, after I was a college student, uh, we had the joy of becoming friends with many people in the same positions as we were, all eager seminarians working hard to get through school. And just around the corner from our apartment lived a delightful young couple with two lovely little kids. He was a keen student, incredibly gifted, and extraordinarily effective in circles just like this. He was a youth pastor, if ever there was one. He was born to be that. An amazing guy. But this was also the kind of family everyone knew would, over, over a lifetime of ministry, accomplish fabulous things for God. We saw it coming. Now, to earn his way through seminary, our friend worked the night shift at UPS. One day, the worst tragedy imaginable struck the family. As he was coming home from work, about 3 a.m., a drunk driver swerved into his lane, slammed into his car, and killed him immediately. This was every seminarian's wife's worst nightmare. Here she was, a young widow with two little mouths to feed, the delight of her life snatched from her in an instant, and the prospect of a very uncertain future ahead of her. Now, what would she do? What would you do? Of course, we all tried to rally around her to console her and comfort her and hold her hand and walk with her through this grief. And the people in their church were incredibly supportive. This was a horrible experience. But to me, a young seminarian, this was not just a painful emotional experience. It presented to me and many others a serious theological dilemma. I could not help but ask, does God know what he's doing? 
Think about it. From the perspective of the kingdom of God, this makes no sense to snuff out the life of this young man with such remarkable talent, such an amazing heart, a genuinely gracious and gentle Christian character, such love for his lost neighbors, even before he's reached his prime, and you snuffed out like that. What a waste. Think of all that he could accomplish for the kingdom of God in a normal lifespan of 70 or 80 years. It doesn't seem right. There's something wrong with this picture. Well, that's exactly how I feel about Josiah. Whether it is the version preserved for us in 2 Kings, and that's where I started, or the version in 1 Chronicles, what potential for greatness this young man possessed. Oh, yes, he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years which means he was 39 when he died because he came to the throne at the age of eight. An amazing guy. By ancient standards, 39 years was just below average. If you do the calculations in your Bible, you'll find that the, av- the kings of, of Judah averaged 44 years. In those days, people didn't live nearly as long as we do now. But this doesn't really blunt the problem, especially when we consider that he came to the throne at such a tender age, a mere child, when his good and godly father, Hezekiah, uh, uh, died. But he reigned, this is Manasseh, uh, he acceded to the throne at the tender age of 12. Uh, He reigned for 55 years. And I say, does God know what he's doing? On the surface, it looks like a good thing, except that according to the biblical record, Manasseh pursued a policy of apostasy and evil more aggressively than any other king in Judah before him. In fact, according to 2 Kings 21, the only significant achievement of this man was the depths of evil to which he dragged his people, deeper even than the wicked Canaanites, whom the Israelites had replaced. That's what the text says. Well, when Manasseh's son Ammon succeeded him, he continued the policies of his father. But now I can say, thankfully, he reigned only two years. And then it was Josiah's turn. He was, uh, Ammon was assassinated. The citizens of Judah rose up in defense of the house of David, and they crowned Ammon's son, Josiah the king, at the tender age of But demonstrating the truth of Ezekiel that nobody is a victim of his or her family of origin, Josiah quickly established himself as an extraordinarily righteous and godly king. How does that work? He broke out of the system established by his grandfather. Look at the testimony of the author in 2 Kings 22, 22, and even more emphatically, 23, 23. We'll look at them in a moment. Not only did the conduct of this boy follow the course of the great ancestor David, 
in the narrator's eyes of our scripture, he exceeded all the kings of Israel and Judah, including David, in piety and fidelity to the Lord. If ever there was a king who followed the model of kingship in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, this was the guy. He embodied it all. He was the one whom the Lord had chosen. He had a heart after God. He was not only the man in God's heart, he had his heart after God. But herein lies the tragedy. Coming to the throne at the age of eight, he had the potential of outliving his grandfather, who, his ugly grandfather, who ruled for 55 years. He could, if he had lived to the age of 60, 70, he could have reigned longer than his grandfather and done, un, undone all the evils that his predecessors had done. Unfortunately, this didn't happen. He tried to bring the nation back on course, but no, in the prime of life, he died. Unfortunately, the description of Josiah's death in 2 Kings 23 raises more questions than it answers. I wonder why the author doesn't give us any more details. I think he's as embarrassed theologically about this uh, event as I am. I don't get it. But that's probably why when the author of Chronicles was writing the story, probably 200 years later, he fleshed it out with a bunch of missing details. And that's what I read for you. Now, during the reign of Josiah, we witness a revolution in ancient Near Eastern political scene. The Assyrians had been the emperors for a long time, but they were on their taking their last breaths. And meanwhile, the Babylonians were coming. And this is just before 600 uh, B.C., the Egyptians were trying to grease the slide uh, or, or trying to come to the aid of the Assyrians and ward off the Babylonians who were on the rise. We've got to stop them. And Pharaoh Necho comes up from Egypt. And in order to get way up there north to Syria, he has to go through Judean territory. And for some reason, we don't know why, Josiah takes it upon himself to stop the Egyptian pharaoh. Who does he think he is? And at Megiddo, he engages him. But I don't know if you noticed when I was reading the second part from the book of, of uh, Chronicles, did you notice that it is the Egyptian Pharaoh who offers Josiah a theological interpretation of what's happening. This is really weird. Nico warns Josiah, don't interfere with God who is behind my campaign. I suppose we could ask, how should Josiah know that in the providence of God, the time had come to remove the Assyrians? But that time had come to remove them from the scene and replace them with the Babylonians who would be God's agent in judging, punishing Judah and Jerusalem. Well, Josiah refused, foolishly ref, 
refused to listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. What? Really? That doesn't make any sense. He's an Egyptian. And yet this is what the author of the biblical text says. Those words from Pharaoh were divine words. God was speaking through this pagan king. Well, disguising himself so no one would target the king. You see, in those days, the king would regularly be at the front of the army and everybody would know who he was because he is the one in the front and he'd be dressed in probably slightly better uniforms than, than the other troops and he'd be the natural target. But he disguised himself so nobody would know who he was and his men charged into battle and wouldn't you believe it? A random arrow. No, there are no random arrows, are there? An arrow aimed at the Judean army in general strikes Josiah and kills him. This is what had happened to Ahab earlier in the northern kingdom. He deserved to die because he was a wretched man. This was his due punishment for what was happening. And in fulfillment of the prophet Micaiah ben Imla's prophecy, it happened to Ahab. But this is not Ahab. This is Josiah. It's as if the author is telling this story against the foil of Ahab and making us struggle even more theologically with this. It doesn't make any sense. How could this be? And especially since the chronicler's evaluation of Josiah is exactly the same as the author of Kings, the author of Chronicles recognizes him as a good man too. In view of Huldah's prophecy uh, that the Lord would gather Josiah to his fathers and that he would be gathered, uh, he would be gathered to his grave in peace, we might have expected that he's going to live long and everything's going to be hunky-dory, but instead this, this doesn't look like a peaceful going to the grave. That's simply a way, a euphemism for death and burial. They had family tombs in those days. So being gathered to one's fathers, one's ancestors, means being buried in the family, in this case, royal family tomb. Uh, How do we explain it? Since Huldah's prophecy links the nature of Josiah's death expressly with the condition of his heart, I don't know if you remember as I was reading it, Perhaps there were, that's where we should look for the answer. And so I would like to uh, look at this uh, Josiah from three perspectives this evening. First of all, uh, I mean, the theme is the marks of a tender heart. There's the word. What, are, what kind of heart did Josiah have? Secondly, what were the evidences of this kind of heart toward God? And what was the reward for the heart like this? So what kind of heart did Josiah have? Some of us are aware that the Hebrew word lave, usually translated heart, refers to that organ in your body at the literal level that pumps blood through the whole system and keeps you going. But it's interesting that the biblical Hebrew has no word for brain. Did you ever notice that? They use the same word for your thinker as your feeler 
all the time. In fact, 50% of the time, it is not the seat of emotions or even the will that's involved, but it's out of the heart come the thoughts of people. And so now we have to recognize that this word in, the, in, in, in Scripture means the, your, inner, your inner being. That's where it comes it's the seat of thought as well as the seat of emotions. So when we speak of Josiah's heart, we need to think of his heart and mind, his inner being. Well, the, uh, the author of Kings refers to Josiah's heart three times. 2 Kings twenty nine nineteen. Because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. I love that verse. Because your heart was tender. Second Kings 23, 23. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commands and his covenant stipulations and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. There's that word heart again. And then Second Kings 23, 25. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the whole Torah of Moses, nor did any like him arise after this. There never was one like this before, nor was there anyone after. And of course, when we, re- when we hear this, we- he turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and all his might. You've heard that before somewhere. That heart, again, means with all his inner being, both his, he, 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 he's had uh, brain surgery as well as heart surgery. <laughs> with all his heart and with all his soul. Actually, this means with his whole body. These are three concentric circles, starting from the inside, the inner inner being, then his body, and the last one, and (laughs) we talked about this in class yesterday. The last one means with all his very. There's a strange word that we have here, old, if we had met... uh, uh, this morning, and we'd have greeted each other, and we'd say, good morning, while in Hebrew, it'd be Bokotov. But if you want to say, very good morning, what a spectacular morning this is, we would say, Bokotov Ma'od, very good morning, super good morning. And that's what this is. It's an adverb. He loved the Lord. He turned to the Lord with all his very. Makes no sense at all. This is the only place where this word is used this way, except for what you know as the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Shema Yisrael Yahweh and Oheinu Yahweh Echad. I'm breaking out in tongues here. <laughs> but at least we got the language of heaven. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone, no other gods. 
That's it. This is a, he is the only character in all of Scripture who fulfilled what Jesus informed. Remember that rich young guy comes to Jesus and asks, what's the greatest commandment? He says, don't you know? You know this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But the original has only three words Jesus put in four, heart and mind, because He's a new living translation kind of interpreter because if you say only heart, you've missed half its meaning. And so he said, I, I, I'll, I'll give two parallel lines here and we'll catch both. That's what he, that's, that's Josiah. He turned to the Lord with his entire being. And that last word, ma'od, very, that actually refers to with all his resources, everything that belonged to him. And for us, that means, well, with all our books, with all our studies, with all our stuff, with all you know, everything that we has our name on it, it's all devoted to the Lord alone, nobody else. That's what was fresh about Josiah. After Manasseh and Ammon, his father and his grandfather, he was the pure, pious, godly, unqualified saint, which makes the story even more tragic, doesn't it? Why did he, why did God take him? And I keep asking that question. But this is the kind of heart the Josiah had, totally committed to God, more so than any other king of Israel, even more than David or Hezekiah. It's hard to imagine biblical writers having a higher opinion of anybody in all of Scripture. It is an amazing story. That's why he's one of my favorite characters. I want to be like Josiah, that the author, whoever writes your story, will say, they turned to the Lord with your whole being, nothing left over for any other gods. And of course, anything else is idolatry. So when we talk about the nature of a tender heart, we are talking about a mind and a will that are soft toward God, pliable in his hands, sensitive to what he's trying to do in our lives. The marks of a tender heart. This is Josiah. This is a heart and mind that is grateful to God for his unmerited favor, his redemption, his call to covenant relationship, and our standing with him all by grace alone. Well, what are the evidences of this kind of heart? And you may have picked up on some of these. On what did the author base this opinion of Josiah? What were the evidences of a heart? Well, contrary to many uh, who are using Matthew 7, 1 against this, judge not that you be, may not be not judged. The author is passing judgment on him. <laughs> he has, in fact, judged. The inspired author looks at the way Josiah lived, and he makes some rather specific judgments about what a, what a tender heart looks like or what a life from a person with a tender heart looks like. First of all, notice a tender heart toward God is demonstrated in one's actions. It's not just in one's speech. 
you know, in our day, we have this curious notion that God looks at our heart. He doesn't look at what we do. Where'd we get that from? You are what you do. You can't separate what we do from our hearts. And so when we see, look, want to, when we want to look at what Josiah's heart is like, we look at what is, and look what, and look what the text says. Uh, he acted right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in all the ways of his father, David. He didn't turn aside to the right or the left, never got off course. That's evidence of a proper heart, a tender heart to God. Those of you who have studied the style of Old Testament narratives may be aware that in the scriptures, biblical narrators, the people who write the story, rarely tell us what is going on in the mind of the author or what kind of uh, uh, commitments they have. They let you judge that spiritual condition from their actions and from their speech, especially from what people say. You can tell what kind of people they are. Well, it's interesting that when you read the story of Josiah, that in this case, it's against the rule. We, we hear of only three very short speeches from Josiah. All of them are short. It's not what's in in Josiah's mouth that he brags about, aren't I somebody great? But here we recognize in Josiah, the words that Jesus declared in Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, etc. And the same state happens in, in the positive sense. It's out of the heart that Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in his, uh, the steps of his father, David. But what are the concrete evidences of Josiah's right heart? If you know the story of Josiah, it starts out very quickly after he became king. He, he decides, it's time for us to refurbish the temple. It had been... It had been uh, neglected for a long, well, actually, it's not only neglected. During Manasseh, Grandpa Manasseh's life, he had brought in all kinds of crazy Assyrian gods and planted them right inside the temple, right inside the court of the temple, and all kinds of stuff. It was time for house cleaning, so Josiah commissioned his men uh, uh, to go and clean out the temple. And you remember what happened? While they were cleaning the temple, they discovered something. What was it? A Torah scroll. A scroll. They discovered the scroll, and it's interesting to watch what happened when they discovered the scroll. It's as if they didn't even know what they had, they had discovered. It was either covered so, with so much dust, there had been been there for a long time during the reigns of his predecessors, obviously had not been driving the people's uh, conduct or their life. Remember when David was about to die, he said to his son Solomon in his parting words, don't forget to pay attention. Read the Torah of Moses all the days of your life and it will keep you straight with God. 
Well, obviously, for uh, through the reigns of a couple of kings, nobody was bothering to read this scroll, and they seem not to even to have recognized what it was. And so they brought it to, uh, Hilkiah found it, and they brought it to the scribes and to the priests, and eventually they discover that this is actually the Torah. I think in this case, the word Torah is not the whole Pentateuch. That would take too big a scroll. It's the book of Deuteronomy, and scholars all agree that this is some version of the book of Deuteronomy. That's what they discovered here in the process of cleaning the temple. They rediscover the Bible. That's what was happening here. But the interesting thing is what happens. The document passes from hand to hand, trying to figure out what shall we do with this. Hilkiah the priest finds it and hands it to Shaphan the scribe, who brings it to the king, and then he reads it in the king's presence. And ultimately, it is left to the prophet, Huldah, to interpret to the king what this means. Well, when Josiah... Uh, discovers uh, this, this, tem- this, or when his people discover this Torah school, that's when we really start to see his, the uh, evidence of, uh, of his life and his heart toward God. What happens next? We discover that when a tender heart hears the word of the book of the Torah, he recognizes this to be the very word of God. This is new. We haven't seen this in half a century. (laughs) But to Josiah, according to 2 Kings 23, 13, based on what is written in the word, Josiah accepts as absolutely true the frightening prospect of the fury of God. The nation is about to get hammered because they have been so evil. And Josiah believes that. The wrath of God has been ignited for the people's sins. And then Huldah gives a speech which is quite memorable on two accounts. First, in the first part, she talks about the fate of the nation. Because of their sin, 586 has been written down on the Lord's calendar. That's the year they fell to the Babylonians. And we're now about, uh, what shall we say, uh, 609 or uh, 610 BC. This is... 20 years or 30 years before the event actually happened. But on God's calendar, the end of Jerusalem has been decreed. And that's what in the first part of Hulda's speech she says. But then she says to Josiah, you needn't worry because you will be all right because your heart was tender and you will, uh, you, you will go to your grave in peace. So he hears the word of God, he trusts it as a very word of God, and he responds to it that way, repenting, did you notice? He tears his clothing and he weeps before the Lord when he hears the word of God. Second, he charges his officials to look further from further word from God and even to intercede on behalf of the people. Can we, can we spare the nation? And finally, 
he embarks on a, on a policy of reform to change the religious situation in the whole kingdom, tearing down all the idols all over the place, not only cleaning the temple, but all the idols that are everywhere. He extended this house cleaning to the northern kingdom, which is none of his business. That's an Assyrian province. But I think he wants to restore the kingship of David, which is over the territory of all the tribes. And that's what he's trying to do here, not just Judah. He extends the reform there. He leads the people in a Passover celebration, the text says, in a way that hadn't been established, hadn't happened since the kingdom was established. Well, that's 1000 B.C., and we're now in 6, oh, 9, 10, 12, somewhere in there. 400 years we haven't had a Passover like this. That's how dark things have become. These are the marks of a tender heart. A tender heart toward God is demonstrated by how we live and then by how we respond to the word of God. Let's go then to the last question. What is the reward for this kind of heart? Why would Josiah do all this? The author doesn't tell us directly, except that he talks about his heart as being tender and of him turning to the Lord with all his heart. He doesn't actually explain all of this, but it seems that even though the Lord had said, 586 is written on the calendar, and the Lord had said, you don't need to worry about it. You'll go to your grave in peace. Josiah says, I'm not going to my grave in peace alone. We have to bring our nation with us. And this is his passion. He is not a king concerned only about his own welfare. He's concerned about the people. This is in stark contrast to many other rulers that they have had. But of course, it wouldn't happen. What is the actual reward that he gets for being this kind of man? He goes to his grave in peace. This is why I read that text from Chronicles, because he has a proper funeral, a proper funeral in which for which the prophet Jeremiah wrote the official obituary and, and, and the lament on his, in his honor and the dirges which were continuing in memory of Josiah long after this to the time when the book of Chronicles was written. That's what the author says. To this day, they're still singing these dirges for Josiah. That's what you call going to your grave in peace. It means that you have a proper burial. Well, what's the lot of his sons? Jehoiakim who comes at, uh, Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and then ultimately Zedekiah. Every one of them was a, a rascal. And the only one who survived is Jehoiakim who reigned three years and he was schlepped off to Babylon in captivity. That's scarcely going to your grave in peace. But Josiah... The Lord knows 586 is on the calendar, and he says to jo he doesn't say to Josiah, he, the Lord says to himself, is it right to talk that way? Can we imagine, think creatively? The Lord says to himself, Josiah does not deserve to see what's going to happen. 
You see, he's a young man. He could easily live right to 586. He could easily live that long. And God says, no, I can't have that happen to him. He doesn't deserve the horrible fate that is coming upon the, upon the country for the sins of the fathers. And he spares. You know whom Josiah reminds me of? There's another character. In Genesis 5, 21 to 24, we read of another man who was totally out of step and out of tune with his times. Genesis 5, that's that long genealogy, the most inspiring text in all of Scripture. It's like having your devotions in a telephone book. I mean, it's just sheer gristle. But it's interesting. While the rest of the human population was becoming ever more decadent, and you you know what starts in Genesis 6, the story of the flood starts there, the punishment for universal sin. The fury of God is beginning to, uh, God is planning what has, we read, out of this, in this world we read, Enoch walked with God. And what happened? And Enoch disappeared. Well, the old King James, Enoch was not. (laughs) He disappeared, vanished, for the Lord took him. That's an amazing story. What's he saying? God was saying to Enoch... Come home. You're more at home in my presence than among your own people. Come. And that's, I think, what's happening to Josiah. To us, it's a horrific tragedy that this seems to, that this is what happened. But I think God, this has really got Jeremiah going to his grave in the ultimate peace. Because God spares him the horrors of 586 that are coming. And God says, come home. He's not only gathered to his fathers, but he is gathered to the Lord. Just as in Enoch's day, this nation is ready to go down under the fury and the judgment of God. The Lord had written the death sentence on his people. Nothing Josiah could do to impose religious orthodoxy from the top. He tried a revival here from the top down, legislating spirituality, but you can't do that. You can't do that. And it didn't work. And of course, God's time was different in any case. God had written their sentence and it could not be stopped. He would not retract his words. God had written on the calendar Judah's appointment with death. A hundred years earlier, he had already declared the Babylonians would be his agent in that. And now when Josiah tried to stop the the Babylonians, then uh, the Lord says, no. Leave the Babylonians, leave them alone. They are my agents, my servants. They will do the dirty work for me. But the amazing thing is Josiah is removed from this. And it turns out to be such a grace reward for him. 
Well, by now, some of you are wondering what all this ancient history has to do with you. (laughs) The answer is plenty. For in the life of Josiah, we see witnessed for us who are called into into the Lord's service and into fellowship with God. We see the true paradigm of piety, genuine faith, a man with a soft heart toward God. He's a person, uh, what we learn from him is that a person with a tender heart toward God is driven by a concern for the glory of his name, cleaning the house, cleaning the temple, that the name of the Lord may go forth to all the world. My friends, that doesn't happen with dirty, soiled temples, and it doesn't happen with dirty, soiled people. It happens with those who are pure in the eyes of God. A heart that's tender toward God is concerned for his glory and live for him. Second, a heart that is tender toward God never dismisses the word of God as irrelevant, superfluous, and interference in life. The word of God comes to us as a grace. And if we are still in our sin, it is to be reminded, it is grace to be reminded that we are in sin and in need of salvation. That's grace. And that's what Josiah was recognizing. It never dismisses the word of God as irrelevant. A heart tender for God bows before him, pleads for mercy, demonstrates utter subordination to his will. With Josiah, there were no excuses, no trying to evade the awesome force of the authority of the word of God. He could have said to Shaphan when the, when the scriptures were discovered, he could have said, I affirm this book that you are reading to be the very word of God, inerrant, infallible, absolutely trustworthy, <laughs> but then gone on his way living as he pleased. And we discover again that true piety is not marked by creedal statements. It's marked by the life. And that's the way it is. We have a lot of people out there who respond to the Bible this way. You know, you've read James chapter 1. We read the scriptures and they are a mirror. But I'm so pleased to see that when you got up this morning, you did something about what you saw. It could have made for an awfully ugly gathering here. But you did what the mirror tells you to do. And that's the way the scriptures would have us respond. And that is exactly the way Josiah responded. A tender heart toward God takes the word of God seriously and responds with humility and contrition. Josiah could also have said, fine, my fate is secure. The Lord has said the the, the world's going to hell, but I'm going to be all right. And he could have left it at that and smugly gone on his way, never mind the fate. But no, a heart that is tender toward God never gets over the amazing grace and never ceases to plead and try and work with the people around him that they too might get it. And if they don't, that person grieves. A heart that's tender toward God has never had enough of obedience. 
of demonstrating loving loyalty to God. And a heart that is tender toward God never asks God, why do I have to do this? Or even, do I have to? We have this notion that in, in, in God is always demanding of us all kinds of things we would rather not do. And like uh, we did when we were seven and eight-year-old, we said, do I have to? Rather, a heart that is tender toward God always asks, is this all you ask me to do? In view of your mercy and grace, all that I am or hope to be, O Lamb of God, I owe to thee. I close with the words of Charles Wesley's hymn. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me, a heart resigned, submissive, meek, my dear Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. A humble, lowly, contrite heart, believing, true, and clean, which neither life nor death can part from him who dwells within. A heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. Thy nature's let thy nature, gracious Lord, impart. Come quickly from, my, from above. Write thy new name upon my heart. The new blessed name of love. May the Lord take out of our bodies that heart of stone and give us a heart transplant, a heart of flesh, a heart like young Josiah had, even as a college kid. May he do that for us, that we might live to the praise of his glory and go to our graves in peace. Shalom. God be with you.